0: May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to thank you for coming out in this weather. It means a lot to me to see more than three people. Although three people would be all right. As you know, I'm an art critic. That is, I live my life in and through looking at, thinking and writing about art and the human beings who devote their lives to making it. But I also do this as a Christian, as one who thinks and writes about art in the light of the gospel and what God's mercy and grace reveal to me about those artifacts and the human beings that devote their lives to making them. My three days here in Birmingham perfectly embodies my vocation. While I offer three sermons for Lent here, I am also talking about art in the evenings. I know they are related, but I rarely know or am certain how they relate. So although I'm not doing anything art-related in these noon-hour sermons, they are somehow shaped by my experience with art. The Lenten season is the season not only to be tempted to do more spiritual things, it's also the season of comparing ourselves to other spiritual practices, trying to keep up we're beating our breasts and being thankful that we are spending 30 minutes here at church over the noon hour while our poor colleague is going to the gym or taking her lunch in front of her computer. Like the prophet Jonah and Inspector Javert and Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, we don't want to live in a world governed by radical grace. We're happy to live in a world in which Pharaoh and Goliath are humiliated, Jericho and Sodom and Gomorrah destroyed, The evil city of Nineveh, the convict Jean Valjean, and comedian Bill Cosby get what they deserve. We're much more comfortable with God's grace improving us, taking us from good to great, rewarding our efforts, transforming God's one-way love into a two-way transaction in which both parties do their part. That is the kind of grace with which we can live. The kind of grace that won't destroy the moorings of church, family, and society. That will keep us in control by parceling out God's grace to whom we believe truly deserve it. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve it. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Daniel 4 begins with this remarkable hymn of praise, a public witness of God's greatness by none other than Nebuchadnezzar himself, the man who ruled in and by fear, a man who killed those who refused to worship him, and man whom God has been hounding since Daniel and his friends first entered his court as young boys, Hebrew orphans and exiles. But Nebuchadnezzar's hymn of praise, his testimony of God's power and goodness, comes only after he himself endured his own fiery furnace. Daniel 4 begins with a second dream that troubles Nebuchadnezzar. The dream is this there is a magnificent tree that has grown in the midst of the earth, but a watcher from heaven has come down to declare that the tree shall be cut down to the stump and a man will be turned into a beast until he recognizes that God is the giver of all gifts, including the gift of power. And after his own nation's theologians and sorcerers, magicians and therapists are consulted for the interpretation, Nebuchadnezzar asks Daniel again to interpret it. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, like Nathan confronting David over his adultery and murder, you are the man. Nebuchadnezzar is the great tree that will be felled. He is the man who will become a beast. Yet Daniel says something else, something more. He begs Nebuchadnezzar to repent. He pleads with Nebuchadnezzar to do as the king of Nineveh did in the book of Jonah, to put on sackcloth and ashes and throw himself on the mercy of God's court. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't repent. And yet nothing happens for 12 months. God gives Nebuchadnezzar one year to repent. Those who see the God of the Old Testament as a God too ready to smite and destroy and wreck vengeance overlook passages like this, where even in God's judgment, he gives infuriating grace, offering space for repentance not only to the Gentiles, but to Israel herself. And yet there is always a day of reckoning, a today or a now for our repentance. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 6-2, For one year Nebuchadnezzar lives on borrowed time, or better put, gifted time, entirely by the grace of God, which allows him to come to the urgency of this today. But our king doesn't feel this urgency. He doesn't repent. He lives as he has always lived, ruled as he has always ruled. And so, was God's, and so at God's appointed time, God's today of judgment, Nebuchadnezzar is struck with insanity at the very moment that he utters his satisfaction with himself. As he bends his own knee to worship the golden image of himself that he had fabricated for others others in Daniel 3. And so he lives as a beast. God simply allows him to become what his heart had expressed, a bestial insanity and rage that distorted the image of God that he bears. Now this should be the end of the story. Nebuchadnezzar has had his chance. A long chance. But this is not the end, much to our frustration and confusion. At the end of the days, verse 34 reads, that is, after the time that God has allotted for his judgment and insanity, Nebuchadnezzar's own fiery furnace, his reason was restored, and he praised God. What we must not overlook is that God is the agent In Nebuchadnezzar's condemnation and his restoration. Nebuchadnezzar's insanity, his living like a beast, was in no way a preparation for him to receive grace. It was not penance. It did not make him more receptive. In fact, his insanity made it even less probable. Nebuchadnezzar could do nothing as a beast to restore his reason, it had to come from God alone. Entirely. God's grace offered to a murderous and arrogant king who had numerous chances to repent, seven times, 70 times, 70 times seven, but he refused. A man who was getting exactly what he deserved. We're comfortable with God condemning, killing, and judging as he wills. There are plenty of Nebuchadnezzars in our lives. And we know they deserve it. God's justice, when it is exercised on our enemies, those whom we resent or are jealous of, somehow fit our criteria for how God is supposed to act. But when that same God then restores whom he restores, shows mercy on whom he desires to show mercy, which Paul writes about in Romans 9.15, We're skeptical, if not downright angry. And like Jonah and Javert, perhaps a little suicidal. But it gets worse. God doesn't merely restore Nebuchadnezzar's reason, a reason that allows him to praise God as the giver of all gifts, including Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. God restores Nebuchadnezzar's majesty and splendor. And to make matters more confusing to us, he's even given more splendor, as verse 36 says. Now this is certainly not how we would have done it. Nebuchadnezzar clearly has a propensity towards abusing power, as well as a tendency towards ego-maniacal behavior, and so perhaps, perhaps we'd strip him of his power as an unnecessary temptation slowly integrate him back into society, into the church, into community. Perhaps over time, allow him to lead a small group ministry or head up the groundskeeping crew. And above all, we take his confession with a grain of salt until he proved himself to us. And yet this is not how God works. God gives and gives and gives some more. And he gives a lot more. And it infuriates us, angering the older brother in us that resents that those who deserve God's judgment then receive his grace and mercy. And our Javert-like response to God's grace in the life of Nebuchadnezzar is what happens when we fail to realize that we do not interpret these stories in the Bible, but they are interpreting us that following J.G. Haman, quote, every biblical story is a prophecy which is fulfilled in every century and in every human soul, end of quote. You and I are not the righteous, the obedient, and the courageous Daniel. You and I are Nebuchadnezzar. We are egotistical monsters willing to destroy anyone who does not worship the false images of ourselves that we fashion, who are continually being confronted by God who speaks to us, only to ignore it. We are the ones who live in the gracious space and time that God gives us to repent. But you and I are also the ones who go through our own fiery furnaces in which God is with us. We often think the miracle in Daniel 3 with the fourth man in the fire is that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were taken from the fire. But the real miracle is that God himself is with them in the fire. They are unshackled and they are conversing. That is the miracle. And we have fashioned our own fiery furnaces, and we deserve them. And you and I are the ones that God gives more to than we deserve. You and I have come to know what Nebuchadnezzar knows, that salvation is of the Jews. But the Jews in Babylon, the ones whom Jeremiah writes his letter that urges them to marry, have children, and work for the peace of Babylon, that we can read about in Jeremiah 29, are not righteous. They are in exile because of their own Nebuchadnezzar size, arrogance, and unbelief. God has not called the God squad in to clean up Babylon. He has brought a sinful people who know the law and have chosen to ignore it. And yet even so, God was at work through them fulfilling their destiny to be a light unto the nations, as Isaiah writes in 49.6. And so it is with us. It is commonly believed that it was Daniel who helped Nebuchadnezzar with his eloquent public confession and testimony that has become scripture, that has become God's own words, as they become Nebuchadnezzar's through Daniel. And these words, written by an exiled Jewish young man and a Babylonian king, look forward to the word. A Jewish man who lived as an exile in his own homeland, who spoke David's words of anguish and abandonment from the cross, and whose own words from the cross, it is finished, can, through faith, become our own as well. And now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.